First, though, let's take a look at what the return to school is looking like today. And in a few moments, we are going to open up the phone lines. But first, let's check in with education advocate Cindy Dalglish, who has children in the Surrey School District. Cindy, thanks so much for taking some time with us today. Thanks for having me. Uh, September 10th, today was the day many children went back to school. I know you took your kids back to school. How was the process? It was um, smoothish uh, for the most part from a parent perspective. Um, you know, they, we had groups of about eight or nine kids out on the field. Um, you know, they, they took the, the field and put them into the grades, and then every grade had a spot, or sorry, every grade had a spot, and then smaller groups within that grade were also put together with an adult. And then they took them off the field and took them into the classroom. And according to my seven-year-old, she said, we learned what we're not allowed to do, and we read a book. And then we went back outside on the field. <laughs> so a pretty easy first day. She said nothing was too hard, uh, <laughs> which is pretty cute. Um, you know, uh, from that parent perspective, I think they did a great job. It's, um, you can see the stress on everyone's faces and everyone commenting about, you know, this is so weird and this is so bizarre. It seems like everyone's doing the best they can. And, you know, there was a lot of patience. I saw a lot of patience from families, from teachers. We have a new principal this year, and he was at the top of the parking lot as people were coming in with his mask on and greeting everybody and providing that nice, calm, um, excited, happy to have you here voice. Um, and you could see the teachers were excited to see their kids. They they clearly missed the kids from the previous school year. So one parent said the longest spring break we ever did have. Yeah, that's uh, that's one way to put it, for sure. Uh, t- <laughs> today being kind of uh, that day, exactly, everybody uh, kind of going back, not an actual uh, typical day when it comes to classes and learning. Uh, is there still anxiety or concern as to how things moving forward will unfold? Oh, absolutely. I think everyone's kind of got their, their anxieties and nervousness about what's this going to look like. I mean, change in general is already hard when you've got such a big system as it is, but then add in a pandemic and it makes it even more so. I'm hopeful, though, just seeing the the calm on the teachers, you know, maybe inside they're all really freaking out, but I got to tell you, they provided such a beautiful calm for the kids today. Um, they had smiles on their faces behind that mask. You could see their eyes, you know, smiling. It's, um, I, I feel pretty confident in what we're walking back into for now. Uh, we know that that could change at any point in time. And if cases come up or what have you, we, we have to be prepared to pivot again. And uh, yeah, it, it is what it is. And we're, I, I know our school normally would have about 700 kids. And apparently, I mean, it's all gossip at this point, but uh, about 200 of them have chosen the blended learning here in Surrey. And so we're we're down to about 500 students. So we'll see what the, how that works in the classroom. We've talked in the past about uh, the hundreds of kids and the crowding in Surrey and the portables. So with the, with the lower number of people, uh, do you think, or as a parent, are you confident as far as hand washing or sanitizer that the cleaning protocols will be able to be done in, in that to, to keep people safe? 
I, I certainly hope so. I know my oldest is very likely to be in a portable this year. Um, my youngest will still be in the school building. It's, um, it's always been concerning to me that we didn't have, you know, hand washing proper, you know, sinks with drains and all that in the, in the portables. Um, but I know that the teachers and the admin at the school are very much about being proactive of, of safety. So I can't imagine that um, our school specifically wouldn't follow the proper protocol. Uh, we've been talking about this as well, and with uh, Dr. Bonnie Henry saying that, there, that we anticipate there there will be, there could be, there will very likely be cases of COVID-19 exposures, possible cases in schools. Uh, there's been some talk of how the public will learn about that, in that uh, leaving it up to the health authorities, what they tell, who they tell. Uh, do you think there should be a policy that if there is a case in a school, that information is made public? I do believe that um, typically what happens, and this is, it's not new to COVID, where it's the health authority that health authority that has to state if there is a case of something that is, you know, considered contractable or whatnot. Um, I know um, a child that had gotten meningitis and had passed away, and they they had to do the full proper press release and everything. So that protocol has been there all along. It's not a new protocol for COVID. Um, as a parent who, you know, has 500 other kids in the school building, yeah, I think we should be informed. Um, but I do believe it needs to come from the public health officer. We need to know so we can tighten up our belts a bit more as parents and support those who are affected by it. Because the mental support is just as important and we need people to know that that they're supported through potentially contracting it. And how are you feeling now? And I know, again, it's just the first day and we're still trying to figure mm-hmm. out how everything will look. How are you feeling about the size of the learning groups and how the Surrey School Board has addressed that and, and what's what's going to be happening in the days to come? My hope was that when people chose the blended, that that meant the class sizes were going to be smaller. But as I understand it currently, um, the funding still is per pupil um, and it's not you know based on a certain class size they haven't adjusted for that and I don't know if that's a district thing or a ministry of education thing I would think that the money that came from the federal government should be used to help support uh, less kids in a classroom but I also know that means we have to hire more teachers and we don't have necessarily more teachers to hire and this is not we're we're not, we don't have a surplus of teachers in this province, let alone this district. So there's a lot of challenges around that. I would love to see our class sizes be smaller. Um, I just don't think it's it's realistic based on not being able to find those people. So on a confidence scale, if 10 is the most, uh, 1 to 10, how confident are you feeling um, as a parent uh, now that we're into the school year? Um, that would be a good question for next week. But right now, today, just seeing the little bit of protocol that was used this morning, I got to give it a seven and a half or an eight. Um, and I'm hoping that increases next week a little bit. Um, normally, I would say 10 out of 10 in my specific school. I feel like they've always done a good job of dealing with the masses. We're a large and overpopulated school as it is with portables and an extension and and um and they've always done a good job of main, of maintaining the school spirit. So I'm I'm hopeful. As, uh, the best way to describe it is I'm hopeful. 
All right. Well, let's check in with you again uh, in a week or two. Cindy, thank you so much for joining us today. Appreciate it. Thanks, Jill. Well, as you've been hearing in the news earlier today, we learned that B.C. is forecasting a $12.8 billion deficit for the 2020-21 fiscal year. The deficit's driven by the economic impact of COVID-19. But we also heard from the finance minister earlier today that there is some optimism when talking about recent job numbers. Let's bring in Andre Pavlov, a professor of finance at the SFU BD School of Business. Good afternoon to you. Good afternoon. Uh, What is your initial reaction when you hear that number that the deficit in this province uh, has grown to 12.8 billion? Right. I I like that you emphasize the growth part. So, uh, So this is an increase relative to the July update of $300 million. Uh, and um, this is particularly concerning to me. Uh, I mean, the number itself is large, but the fact that it has grown since to July, despite um, uh, uh, an, an unexpected improvement in um, retail sales, unexpected improvement in housing, unexpected drop in unemployment, despite all these positive factors, our deficit has actually increased. Um, and that makes me wonder what would happen if the economy doesn't surprise on the positive side. And what will really happen is the economy by some chance uh, actually underperforms going forward. Uh, some of the other numbers that were released today, uh, as far as uh, under the economic highlights, uh, talking about BC's real gross domestic product, uh, the forecast there is a decline by 6.7% this year before increasing by 3% in 2021. Uh, how much do we do we need to pay attention to uh, the decline and, and the increase, what we gain back when it comes to GDP? Well, I think that matters a lot because that captures not just uh, government um, revenues and expenses, but uh, more importantly, captures the health of the entire economy. Clearly, 6% uh, plus decline is, is very substantial. It's unprecedented. Um, but, um, you know, we have a reason for it. Hopefully that reason is temporary. Um, I'm very optimistic that we'll get over the virus one way or another uh, soon. And, uh, and once that happens... Hopefully, we're going to be in a situation um, of continued growth. Um, However, we need to make it easier for people to start businesses in BC. We need to make it easier for people to operate, to build stuff. Um, And um, and I think only then we can, uh, you know, enjoy economic recovery and actually be in a better place than we were before. And I guess it's impossible to put a timeline on that because we don't know what's going to be happening with the virus, with the vaccine developing. But but is there is there a timeline when you see that we need to be getting out of this? Well, I mean, we can only look at um, the evolution of past uh, viruses. And um, I'm no medical expert, but it seems to me viruses tend to somehow um, disappear um, after a while. Uh, it, it doesn't seem like we're going to get a vaccine this year, at least not one that can be widely distributed, but hopefully sometime next year, either a vaccine or some sort of treatment uh, will come um, will become available, and then we can um, go back to our normal lives. Even if that doesn't happen, I think we're as we go along, we're learning how to manage the virus and how to minimize um, risk to vulnerable populations. And by doing so, Um, I believe we're going to be able to open up our economy more 
um, without increasing the risk to, to the vast majority of people. Um, which I think a lot of people are, are hoping for and are looking forward to. Um, how much does a does a plan like this, uh, the numbers that we're seeing today, uh, we've talked about the low interest rates, uh, the fact that they, they've stayed low for so long. How much does this depend, though, on them staying at those record low rates? Well, rates clearly uh, matter because that makes it easier for people to borrow, for businesses to borrow and, and to invest. Uh, but in addition to the rates, we also need, as I said already, we need to simplify our regulatory environment uh, so that it is so that businesses can operate and grow uh, faster than than they did before. Uh, and then, given that we have been able to keep um, our um, um, COVID infections to relatively low levels, uh, we could actually be in a position to take advantage of great economic recovery and attract businesses from around the world. Um, but we've got to simplify our regulatory framework. The way it is right now, it's very difficult to operate, very difficult to build anything anywhere. Um, and, um, and with that, it's hard to attract businesses. Uh, do you think we have uh, seen enough or, or at least seen how we're able to get rid of red tape and streamline processes? I mean, even when it comes to permits for patios, when it comes to doing things online, have we learned those lessons during this pandemic? Well, I haven't seen um, any real action on making it easier to start a business in BC or to operate a business in BC. It is certainly not any easier to build anything in the lower mainland from from a single family home to to a high rise um, you know it, none of that red tape which is very enormous uh, has been uh, reduced or eliminated so yeah sure uh, restaurant patios and, and other permits are are a great idea and it's it's good news that we're doing that but uh, major underlying obstacles to um, our economic growth uh, in terms of regulation and and complex tax law, uh, in my view, are still very much in place and nothing has been done to address that. Uh, You mentioned retail sales earlier, and that was one of the numbers released today, that sales are just 0.2% lower, uh, were lower in June compared to February of this year. And the housing market, as we've talked about before, has been resilient. July home sales up 25.5%. How do you explain or, or how can we explain how those sectors seem to be doing so well compared to everything else? Well, partly uh, it's probably coming from the um, calendar wage subsidy programs, uh, which give people uh, some money in the interim, uh, even uh, so that people can um, uh, buy stuff, even if they have lost their jobs. Uh, So that certainly helps. Um, And then in terms of real estate, I think uh, lower interest rates matter, but also buying um, uh, real estate, commercial or residential, is a very long-term decision. You buy a home or a commercial building with the intent of, uh, of holding it for um, possibly a decade or more. And um, I think most people understand that the virus, as, as, um, as difficult as it is right now, um, eventually will disappear and will get back to normal. And uh, hopefully Vancouver will remain the great place to live that it is now. Um, and with those two factors in place, um, you know, investment in long-term property, um, you know, continue to be attractive. 
Thanks for being with us. Well, there has been rumor, there has been speculation about the possibility of elections, both in B.C. on a federal level. A lot of people saying that is the last thing they're looking forward to or thinking about during a pandemic, but that certainly hasn't stopped the discussions. Is it even possible? Let's bring in David Mosscrop. He is the author of Too Dumb for Democracy, also a postdoctoral fellow in the Department of Communication at the University of Ottawa. So great to have you back on the show. Thanks for being here. My pleasure. Uh, I always I miss BC media so much, so it's always nice to be back. <laughs> so yesterday, the premier was asked specifically, are you going to break the promise that you made to the BC Green Party with the confidence agreement and call an election? He didn't flat out say no. He kind of danced around it saying, well, we made that agreement when there was no pandemic in the in the world. There was no word pandemic in the agreement. Things have changed. What does that say to you? He also added that, and this was echoed by Andrew Weaver, former leader of the Greens, that they had achieved most of what was in that agreement. And so if it, if it wasn't his intention not to seek an election, he would have said, it's my intention not to seek an election. So, you know, I would put it this way. Every time a commentator makes a prediction, an angel loses its wings, but I'm going to do it anyway. I think it's highly likely that there's going to be an election this fall, sometime late September, October. Uh, the NDP just can't resist it. I mean, they're, they're not only high approval ratings, but they're high in the polls with one poll putting them at something like 50% would vote for them if the election were held, despite the fact that one third of British Columbians, as reported by the Angus Reid Institute, uh, are sort of uncomfortable in election. If you're a political backroom hack, those numbers are just impossible to ignore and resist. But doesn't it also then look like pure greed that the government appears to be working? You're, granted, you're dealing with a pandemic, but it's not as though things aren't getting done. The money is, is going to people who need it. Things are happening. What The point, I mean, how could you look at it any other any way other than this is greed and, and trying to get that majority when you're sailing high in the polls? Well, I don't think you can look at it any other way. I mean, unless you're a, a you know, a true dyed partisan, in which case it's the only way you probably will get it. <laughs> Orange partisan, by the way. Uh, and if you're red or green or, or independent, you probably see it the way it is, which is, yeah, it's cynical. Uh, and in fact, ghoulish, because you hit it right, you hit the nail right on the head. The government is working. I mean, I, I don't know how you turn around. You say, on the one hand, we're a good government doing good work and people love us, which, by the way, I happen to think all three of those things are true. Oh, by the way, this isn't working, we need an election. Right. <laughs> I mean, one of those things uh, is untrue. And I suspect it's the latter in this case. So I, I don't think you can look at it. And plus, I mean, there is an election scheduled for October 16th, 2021, or whatever it is, you know, mid, mid-October 2021. And if the government works now, presumably it's going to keep working. And you're only going to give more time to folks, provincially, municipally, federally, to manage the pandemic and to prepare for an election. And so why wouldn't you wait? The only reason you wouldn't wait is because you're worried about your numbers going soft or you're worried about a huge deficit uh, in the budget. So if they don't wait, though, doesn't that mean they would have to call it within the next couple of weeks? Well, I mean, I would imagine the move would get made, what's today, the ninth? You you lose track of days at some (laughs) point. It doesn't matter at some point, uh, for for most purposes of my life, at least. But uh, probably in the next two weeks, you, you make a move. And uh, so I would imagine, I mean, if it's going to happen, I suspect you'd, you'd see something in the next couple of weeks, and then it would be mid-October, whatever the, whatever the minimum is. Um, but I, I should say this, though. Uh, 
this country and provinces have the best electoral uh, agencies in the world. Elections BC can figure this out to the, to the best of their ability, and that'll be quite good. But it's still extraordinarily risky. So it's not like this is a mass death event. It's, it's a calculated risk. But I think a lot of people would agree, including myself, that it's an unnecessary risk that should be avoided. Right, because if even if they were to call it in the next couple of weeks and do it, say, mid-October, then because because that's really the only window in that you can't risk it not knowing what COVID numbers are going to look like in November, not knowing what flu numbers are going to look like in November, and then you can't do it at Christmas. So it really is a small window, isn't it? Oh, it's an extraordinarily small window. I mean, if, if again, the... the sensible thing to do is just to wait and then you don't have to worry about that but if you're insistent as the, the new democrats uh, could very well end up being that you've got to do it because your numbers are high you do it right now uh, of course that puts everybody under the gun because you know most people don't see what goes into an election you've got to really look and in fact it's a testament to this country into the province of british columbia into many provinces that most people don't know what goes into an election because they just work it's sort of like you expect your light to turn on in the morning, you expect the sun to rise, you expect elections to work. Well, they work because people work them. And that's an extraordinary amount of energy and, and, and in this case, risk that goes into setting this thing up and doing it. So, yeah, so you'd want to do it now ahead of the, the winter um, and ahead of what, whatever might lie ahead of us. We don't know what that is. But again, that's always going to be your second best choice just waiting for next fall. So if they were to go ahead and do this, is there a chance you think it could backfire? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, here's the thing. People are fickle. We're unpredictable. Um, Campaigns matter. Uh, And, and, you know, who you should ask about whether campaigns matter? The NDP. They remember, right? Uh, We all remember the headline. uh, This man could kick a dog and still win the election. (laughs) That is, of course, Premier Adrian Dix. Oh, no, wait. No. Nope. <laughs> Adrian Dix never became premier. So um, elections matter and it could go sideways. You know, the NDP might be at 40 you know, percent vote intent among British Columbians, but that could change really quickly, especially if a third of British Columbians are nervous about an election and especially if numbers keep uh, climbing up. Right. I mean, the COVID numbers are bad. They're getting worse, potentially a lot worse. So what happens if it really goes pear-shaped in the midst of an election? Who was going to get blamed for that? I would, potentially the party that called the uh, blamed for putting people at risk. Potentially the party that called the election. And when, when we talk about that as well, uh, the the numbers and not knowing. I mean, we we're hearing my social media feeds are filled every day with people either saying they're seeking the nomination, they're not going to run in the next election. This is this is constantly happening. The the speculation and the rumor. We just saw the BC Liberals today uh, came out and they they uh, shifted. They they did a shuffle of their shadow cabinet. Uh, I mean, do these things all point that people are gearing up for that? Yeah, so I'm going to use an analogy here, but I hope people won't mistake. If anyone read The Guns of August, it was about World War One. At some point, you know, orders start to go out, and then it makes a certain reality more likely. You can't, you can't get them back, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So the more that it seems likely an election's going to happen, the more people are going to prepare for an election. The more people prepare for an election, the more likely it's going to look like an election's going to happen, and eventually you're just beyond the point of no return. And so I, I suspect... People are doing exactly what rational people would do if they're worried about a potential election, even though they might not want one, uh, they prepare. 
And that includes elections BC that are they're going about and doing their business because they've got to secure locations and leases. They've got to get volunteers. They got to print everything. You know, they, they've got a lot of work to do in a short period of time. So yeah, everyone's doing doing exactly that. That said, it doesn't guarantee there's going to be an election. It just means that people are concerned there might be, and they got to get started right away on getting everything done that they got to get done. Because again, it's a lot of stuff. Even though to most of us it doesn't look like it, there's just a ton of activity and a ton of labor. Well, even even just looking at, and I guess everything would be different, or maybe not, given that there's a pandemic. I mean, I always vote at a school, and we've just gone through this weeks of talking about getting kids back in schools and being safe. I mean, parents took their kids to school today, and the parents weren't even allowed in the building. And we're suggesting, if we're doing it like an old school election, that we're going to open them up and let strangers come in, people out of bubbles come in and cast ballots. It just seems very strange. Strange is terrible. Strange is an extraordinarily <laughs> terrible way to put it. Uh, I, yeah, strange. I mean, I mean, l- let's look at it this way. Where do we tend to have voting? Schools, churches, community centers, the sorts of places we want to try to depopulate right now. And who does the, the work of, of manning uh, uh, these stations, of, of, uh, of taking care of the voting? If you look at the, the it's typically older folks the sorts of people we don't really want on the front lines of an election right now. So, yeah, I mean, again, I think it's extraordinarily risky and silly because we're just sort of compiling these risks and we're compiling them in places and among populations we ought not to be. So I would imagine the province, the British, the, the NDP government is sort of looking around. They're looking at um, Atlantic Canada, looking at New Brunswick. They want to see how that goes, although that election is at a different time. Uh, and then trying to find best practices from that. Because, again, there are things you can do, right? You can do advanced voting. You can, you can space people away. Uh, you can have more advanced voting days, uh, which is a trend in this country already. You can have mail-in ballots. There's lots of stuff you can do. But, again, there, there's still going to be an unnecessary risk there. Yes, the, the phrase, if it's not broken, don't fix it, I think is probably running through a lot of people's heads right now. Or why roll the dice? <laughs> That's, a, that's another good one. Uh, David, we'll leave it there for today, but thanks so much. It's always good to have you on the program. Always my pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for being with us. Just a reminder, we are going to be checking in with BC Teachers Federation President Terry Mooring in about an hour from now to get an update on how the return to school for students and teachers is going today. Right now, though, we are going to talk a little bit more about the news that broke yesterday. It came as a big surprise to many that We Charity is closing operations in Canada. Let's bring in Mark Blumberg, a partner at Blumberg Seagull LLP and a lawyer that specializes in looking at the operation of charities. Mark, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you, Jill, for having us. What was your first response when you heard that here we are just weeks after We Charity was set to deliver this huge multi-million dollar government program, it's closing up shop in Canada? Well, I was um, probably not that surprised. Um, you know, obviously every week or two there's more stuff on the We situation, but um, they have uh, lost uh, all of their major uh, sponsors and um, and many of their major donors and others. So they were essentially um, already 
having had shut down a lot of their activities. So it sort of made sense. It was only a matter of whether it would be a month from now, two months from now. But when you're taking in 60 or 70 million a year and then you're taking in nothing, you have to make some significant changes or you will have nothing at the end, right? So um, they've already closed down many of their uh, programs, uh, laid off a lot of their staff. So it wasn't surprising that eventually uh, they would say that they're going to be restructuring in some way. Uh, is it surprising at all that this comes at a time when uh, the, the Kielbergers blamed the pandemic, uh, blamed the fallout because of what happened with that deal with the government, which, as we know, uh, is now defunct? Is there any surprise in the timing of that? Well, I think, um, you know, there's a proroguing of Parliament, so all the committees looking into this stuff have basically been disbanded. And uh, we have, uh, you know, people are going to be going back uh, in a couple of weeks, I guess, Parliament will come back. So I think probably they wanted to try and shift the media attention from the story away from uh, that. Um, but practically speaking, there's very little in their announcement that really gives us much of an idea of what they're actually going to do. And in fact, um, you know, it raises a number of other issues and there are uh, a number of uh, people in, uh, you know, opposition parties who have lots of questions that haven't been answered. There's a lot of material that we haven't provided to the parliamentarians that uh, is still being looked at. There are a number of potential areas where there could be some investigations of we. So this doesn't really actually make much of a change. It was a a good media event, but um, it's really not something that fundamentally changes anything. Is there anything about we, uh, from what we know now, from what we maybe have learned from the committee before uh, Parliament was prorogued, from the testimony at the committee, is there anything that sticks out for you as odd or different from how other charities operate? Well, yeah, there's lots of things. um, But I mean, for one thing, if you're doing a lot of lobbying, you should register as a lobbyist. If you're a federal corporation and you have over 10,000 in revenue, you're supposed to file your financial statements with the um, with the Corporations Canada, which they didn't until recently do. Um, you know, they are involved with all sorts of things that they're doing, um, and one could probably spend an hour or two and just go through each of the areas, whether it's business activities, foreign activities, their filings, and other things. Um, and um, I would say they're a very unique charity. Very different from any other charity certainly I've ever seen um, in terms of the level of complexity. And uh, there are lots of problems in terms of lack of separation between the different entities. So it's really hard for the public as well as internally within their organization or any regulator that's looking at it to probably tell where does one entity start, where does one end, that sort of thing. Um, So I would say that although there are some elements of what they're doing that may have some similarity to some other groups, I think sometimes the way they were doing things was very different than than how other groups um, are, are operating. And when you say that, when you talk about kind of the lack of, of things being separate, are you referring to the, the We Charity and the Me to We? Um, yes, that, but uh, there's, uh, we don't know, 15 to 20 different entities. And in fact, this was part of the problem with uh, that the government had said that uh, the five, they said it was 900 million in the beginning, but then it became 543 million was actually with We Charity, but it actually wasn't. It was with something called We Charity Foundation, which is a completely different entity that has no employees, no um, uh, real estate, nothing really. It was a, a, an entity that was set up uh, about a year and a half before uh, this big contract. 
So there is confusion between the charities. There's confusion between the charities and the for-profits. And right now, we sort of have about 40% of the picture, maybe. But it's like the Mona Lisa without the face. We basically don't get to basically have any understanding of the for-profit side. What are their financials? Um, how much assets do they have? How much money came over from the charities and uh, versus money going the other way? And was it appropriate? There, there are so many questions that still are not answered uh, at this point in time. And are there questions that you have or that you think need to be answered when it comes to who owns what, what falls under the umbrella of the charity and what falls under the private ownership? Yeah, there there have been a lot of questions asked about this. We know that certain assets are owned by the charity, so it's pretty clear they're owned by the charity, and the charity files a form every year about that. Um, what's not clear is because there was such a close relationship between the charity and the for-profit, to what extent could some things that are being held by the for-profit um, maybe should actually be returned to the charity? Um, you know, was it appropriate, all the transfers that happened? We we don't know. Uh, there There isn't enough information out there to really know the answer to that. Um, you know, there's nothing wrong with someone setting up a business and becoming fabulously wealthy from it. Um, in this case, the concern is that it was very clearly tied to a charity, very closely related, and sometimes it was confusing. And so that can result in people wondering uh, whether um, you know the, the for-profit might have gotten benefits that it wasn't entitled to or things of that sort. The uh, There have been many questions about uh, the investigations. As we know, those committees stopped uh, when Parliament was prorogued. Do you think we will still get those answers or is it possible uh, to get those answers as to how this was all working and how this all played out? Well, I mean, we could in a day or two have all the answers to all of our questions if uh, documents were released, uh, you know, that uh, provided the information. So, for example, it probably wouldn't take more than 20 minutes for we, uh, the organization, to release for the various entities their financial statements, which are presumably being done every year. But uh, the only ones we have access to are the ones that involve really the charities. So um, we will then wonder. So, And when Parliament comes back, you still have a minority government. My guess is that the interest hasn't shifted. There's still material that's supposed to be provided to the committees that wasn't, that, you know, and there'll be, this will continue going on. Um, so I'm actually uh, quite surprised at the, the liberal sort of strategy as well as the strategy of we in terms of this issue, because I would have thought they would want to get the stuff out quickly and have the uh, story go away. But they keep on just sort of adding to the problems and not providing the information. So then it makes very dedicated reporters want to push further and keep on going. Um, this is like nothing I've ever seen in the last 20 years uh, in the charity sector. Um, so I think this is definitely something where it would probably be a good idea if there was much more releasing of the information. So instead of us having all these questions and wondering about things, we could actually know what the correct uh, situation is. And then we can get on to other things. You've got school openings, you've got uh, COVID, you've got lots of things on the go. There's no shortage of stuff. Um, but as long as stuff is being hidden and it looks like it's a problem, even if it's not a problem, but in some cases it just looks like a problem, they're going to continue to be questions uh, that will be raised. All right. Uh, we will leave it there. Uh, Mark Blumberg, thank you so much for your time and for joining us to talk about this. Thank you very much, Julie. You have a great day. 
Well, as you've been hearing in the news, uh, the long battle that took place in B.C. Supreme Court has ended. That was the case between Dr. Brian Day and uh, the B.C. government. The B.C. Supreme Court earlier today ruling against legalizing private health care. And this follows the landmark trial. Let's uh, talk more about this with Michael Law, a UBC associate professor in the School of Population and Public Health, also Canada Research Chair in Access to Medicines. Uh, Michael Law, thanks so much for coming on the show. Hi, Jill. Thanks for having me. Uh, what is your response to today's ruling? Well, I think this, uh, this ruling is a really important ruling for Canadian healthcare. And the uh, decision, the judge essentially dismissed all three of the uh, sections of, the, of BC's Medicare Protection Act that uh, Dr. Day and his colleagues were challenging. So it's, uh, it's a big win for the government side. Uh, what will it change then as far as the the Canby Surgical Centre is still there? We've seen governments use these surgical centres to help get surgeries done. What do you think will actually change because of this ruling? Well, that component of things won't change. And in essence, government still can... Uh, can use a private facility to deliver health care. There's nothing about our Medicare system that prevents that. Um, but what might change in, uh, in the future is the ability of the physicians in that center to practice both in the public and private systems, which was always, um, which was always technically against the law in British Columbia. And it would also uh, mean that they wouldn't be able to sell insurance for those services or extra bill their patients above what, uh, what they're currently being paid by the public system. And when you talk about physicians working in both systems, what are some of the issues that you see with that? Well, the biggest issue with this, and it's what people refer to as uh, dual practice, is that if physicians work in both the public and private sector, evidence in other countries would suggest that they tend to maintain longer public system wait lists because they get paid more to provide surgeries in the private side. And do we have examples of that, or was that something that was happening in B.C.? Um, I, not specific, I don't know specifically in uh, British Columbia, but certainly when you look um, internationally in countries like Ireland and Australia, uh, where there are parallel private systems and physicians do um, practice in both systems, the public sector systems definitely have longer wait lists than the private side. Uh, because there are other countries, uh, you just t- mentioned Ireland, there are countries in Europe and other places that do have uh, the two different types of systems. They have that integration between a private system and a public system. Is that what we were talking about here or is that something completely different? No, that's similar to what we're talking about here. So countries like Australia, you can buy private insurance that'll cover essentially the same things as the public system. Um, but Australia's had pretty substantial problems with their, uh, with their system. And uh, they have to subsidize and compel people through the law to actually buy that private insurance. Uh, so it ends up being quite expensive. And it leads to a lot of disparities in the ability of people to access care between those who can afford private insurance and those who cannot. Uh, What did you think of uh, Dr. Day's argument that it was a constitutional right that if you need surgery, you should be able to have access to that surgery, that the wait lists that we were seeing in B.C. were going against the rights of people? Well, the the judge has has essentially given the the legal ruling on this. I'm not a lawyer myself, but um, Justice Steves in the decision uh, said that those restrictions are uh, are necessary to ensure the sustainability of universal public health care in the country and to ensure that it's accessible based on need and not the ability to pay.
Right. Uh, there's also been the argument, and, and people uh, I've heard people making this argument today as well, saying, well, doesn't it make sense that if somebody isn't in the public wait list, if they go somewhere else to get their surgery, doesn't that make the public wait list shorter? It, I, it's, a, it's a simple and compelling argument, but you have to remember that healthcare is enormously large and enormously complex. So if the ways that it can work the other way are if, if physicians have a financial incentive to put people in the private sector, that only means that people go to the private sector if the public system wait lists are long. It also draws resources away. So we have a finite number of doctors in the province. If a whole bunch of them go and work in the private sector, that doesn't increase our capacity to do surgery. It just means they're going to have the same number of surgeries being performed in different places. Uh, there have been a lot, a lot of people, a lot of talk saying that this is a ruling that could impact health care right across the country. Uh, do you think that's a fair comment? I think that's absolutely true. The, um, uh, this case, a lot of people were seeing as a precedent um, that would uh, be set for other provinces, which also have similar restrictions to what BC has in place. So, was the judge to were the was the judge to have ruled in the other direction in this case? Um, it's likely that we would have seen a lot of provinces uh, face challenges, similar laws across the country. Uh, do you think that we're we're focusing on this? Obviously, this this ruling just came down today. Are there other things that we should be looking at in the healthcare system as far as funding, bulk funding, how many surgeries we do, how the budgets are done to to make it a more accessible or perhaps a more better functioning system? Sure, there's a lot of different initiatives that we could undertake to better manage, you know, surgical wait lists and to uh, get people through the system in a more uh, coordinated fashion. Um, but I think what um, what you see from this decision is that the um, it's just not a convincing argument that uh, introducing private insurance for those services is a, a good way to do that. Uh, this is likely going to appeal and uh, be appealed. I know we haven't actually heard from Dr. Day today, but before the ruling, he'd, he'd been quoted as saying uh, if he lost, he would definitely try to appeal. Uh, do you think that we're in for uh, another lengthy court ballo- battle, whether it's uh, to the B.C. Court of Appeal and possibly to the Supreme Court of Canada? I think it's almost a certainty that this case will end up in the Supreme Court of Canada, given the uh, uh, given the nature of what's uh, what's being disputed, this is a case with um, with a lot of backers on uh, on both sides, and there's a lot of money uh, money involved. So I would be stunned if it didn't go all the way up. All right, Michael Law, thanks so much for your time and for coming on the show today. Appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Uh, Michael Law is a UBC associate professor with the School of Population and Public Health, also the Canada Research Chair in Access to Medicines. Uh, your thoughts on this case, if you've been following along, the trial itself lasted three and a half years. There were more than 100 witnesses at that trial. The ruling today, 880 pages ruling against Dr. Brian Day. What are your thoughts on how this has unfolded? Give me a call on the buzz line, 604-331-BUZZ. 331-2899. You can email me as well, jill at cknw.com. Would love to hear from you on this. So when we come back, we're going to talk more about that Transport Canada decision where travelers on the closed ferry decks need to get out of their vehicles. We're going to check in with the CEO of BC Ferries. That's coming up after the news. 
Well, yesterday on the program, we were talking about the news. Transport Canada saying that as of September 30th, the allowing of passengers to stay in their vehicles in the closed decks on BC ferries would end and people would have to get out of their vehicles. A lot of reaction and a lot of questions about this as people wonder about COVID-19, about keeping safe when traveling on BC ferries. Well, joining us is the president and CEO of BC Ferries, Mark Collins. Thank you so much for being with us. My pleasure, Jill. Uh, did you, was this a surprise to you that Transport Canada is rescinding the allowance, or, or did you know this was coming? Uh, no, it's not a surprise, and yes, we did know it was coming. You know, uh, In fact, when the order was first relaxed, or when the regulation was first relaxed, we were told at the time it was a temporary measure. So it was really only a matter of time until a date was advised to us. However, the first we heard of 30 September was just about a week ago. Uh, Did you ask for an extension? We made a submission to Transport Canada about two months ago uh, when they reached out to us and first broached the idea of let's decide on a date. We made a submission requesting the end of this calendar year. However, they did not uh, kind of accept our argument there and instead have decided on 30 September. Uh, People are are understandably worried about this because on September 29th, people will be staying in their vehicles and not mingling with others during a pandemic. The next day, they will have to go uh, to the upper decks of the ferries. Uh, How do you help passengers, BC Ferry users, get through this? Well, there's two two sides to think about here. Firstly, you know, we support the spirit and intent of the Transport Canada regulation because the main car deck is not a space where you typically should stay. In fact, Canada is one of the few jurisdictions around the world that even permitted this relaxation during the uh, pandemic. It's inherently a riskier space than the accommodation uh, section of the vessel upstairs. So people are moving to a safer area of the ship when it comes to normal risk of riding a ferry. Secondly, we have in place uh, all of the same physical distancing measures and protection measures that were in place before September 30th. They will still be in place. So physical distancing is still expected. People must wear masks. It's now a mandatory policy. Uh, There's cleaning and sanitization, and all of those procedures are still in place. So uh, we are focused on providing a safe and healthy travel experience for all of our customers. So why was it allowed for decades then before the rule came in? What was it, 2017? Well, in fact, the rule came in in the international market uh, 25 years ago. Uh, It just came into B.C. in 2017. The rest of Canada, in fact, had complied with the rule for many, many years. It was only in British Columbia that it wasn't being applied. And uh, it was really in response to uh, the very large volumes over short routes that we have here. And for many years, B.C. Ferries, uh, working with Transport Canada, had put what we call alternate mitigations in place car deck patrols, extra fire systems, things like that. Um, However, in the wake of certain international incidents, uh, Transport Canada came to us in 2017 and said, look, we can't accept your alternate methods anymore. You need to get in line with the rest of the country and the rest of the world. And and that's why I came in in 2017. Is it an insurance issue for BC Ferries in that you're more liable if people are uh, still in their vehicles staying on these decks? Oh, this has nothing to do with money or insurance or anything like that. Uh, This is purely about the safety of the traveler. You know, if you have, you know, a fire or or a flooding event, God forbid, if any of those occur, the car deck, uh, the lower car deck is where it's going to be most difficult to extract people. 
remember the accommodation decks on our ships are designed with the traveler in uh, traveler safety in mind. You know, there's extra fire protection, there's sprinklers, there's sight lines, there's lighting, and the evacuation systems are there. It's just inherently safer to be in the accommodation area. So what will happen come September 30th if there are people in those closed decks that refuse to leave their vehicles? Well, our responsibility under Transport Canada uh, regulations is to advise travelers of their responsibility. So it's important to understand that the law here, the regulation applies to the traveler and not to BC Ferries as the operator. We must advise you of your obligations and it's up to the traveler to comply. If a traveler refuses to comply, we will make note of that. We will uh, note where their location is and we will advise Transport Canada of the non-compliance. The analogy here is like when you get on a plane, the, uh, the, the crew of the plane tells you to fasten your seatbelt. If you refuse to fasten your seatbelt, you are the person who is breaking the law. It's, so it's the traveler's onus. It's not the, on the ferry operator. Right. But in the, in the case of the airplane, when people are in noncompliance for various reasons, they can stop the flight, cancel the flight, kick the person off the plane. Is that going to be happening on ferries? Uh, We certainly have the ability to do that. It's not our desire to do that. The ultimate decision to sail rests with the master, uh, the captain of the ship, uh, as it does with the captain of the airplane. So uh, our captain will judge these situations case by case. If we're able to mitigate the safety risk, we will. If we're unable to mitigate the the safety risk to the captain's satisfaction, then the ship will not sail. Uh, would people be, uh, if, if they refuse to get out of the vehicle, I mean, is there a scenario where police officers could meet them when they get to their destination? We can make those requests, absolutely. We can make those requests. Uh, however, I will emphasize it is Transport Canada's decision to employ the police. Transport Canada is responsible for enforcement. We advise them and they decide on the actions to be taken. Uh, There are many people that go into the backs of their vehicles. Truckers often have dogs with them and will stay in their trucks and they're out of sight. What do you do in scenarios like that? Ferry staff must know that there are people in the vehicle decks, even if they can't actually see them. We make every reasonable effort uh, to, to reach to, uh, reach out to every customer and advise them of their responsibilities. You know, if people are deliberately evading our ferry staff, then uh, they're really fooling themselves. Uh, you know, you, you go upstairs for your own personal safety. And if you're evading our staff and there's an incident, you're putting yourself at risk. So uh, it's not in anybody's interest that uh, people should not follow the direction of the crew. Uh, we urge them to do that. Follow the direction of the crew. It's for their own personal safety. Uh, And there was, in the release yesterday, uh, the talk of opening up some more of the space, the dining space, so that there would be room for people to physically distance. But in talking to people who have been on BC ferries during this pandemic, uh, with the nice weather, even so you can go outside, uh, people have said it is very difficult to find a spot on the ferry with so many seats taped off and cordoned off. It's already very difficult to find a space where you're away from people. How is that going to be possible when, in theory, everybody from all of the vehicles is going to be physically in the ferry? Well, uh, you are permitted to remain in your vehicle on the upper deck. Uh, right. And the lower deck tends to be larger vehicles. So it's a relatively small number of people on the lower deck anyway that will be coming up. So uh, the, the influx of people into the accommodation area will not be as great as maybe some folks are thinking. Uh, but no doubt there will be there will be some. There will certainly be an influx. So we're making more spaces available. That's one part of it. Uh, we're also looking at our seating plans and, and seeing what can be can be done under the physical distance requirements to see if we can open up more space. 
But uh, to date, uh, I know there's a lot of anecdotes about it being difficult, but we've not really had a lot of customers coming to us and saying, I, I can't find a place uh, in which I feel safe on the ferry. To date, the vast majority of the feedback we're getting is that it has been a safe and enjoyable travel experience. Uh, do you anticipate there could be further restrictions on the number of vehicles allowed? Well, there are no restrictions on the number of vehicles, and there never have been. Uh, there are restrictions on the number of people we can carry. Uh, we're limited right today to about 75% of our normal capacity based based on passenger count, but we're allowed to carry 100% uh, of our capacity when it comes to vehicles. All right, but do you think then if suddenly when the weather gets colder, if it becomes an issue with people trying to find space, could that change? Well, we will recalculate the spaces and we will know how many people we can accommodate on those spaces. And we will then be counting the number of people that come on the ship, whether the weather is good or bad, counting the number of people coming on the ship. And we will do a cutoff of the number of people on the ship when we reach our limit. So we know those limits in advance and we will be counting them uh, as they come on board. And we won't sell a ticket on a ferry that can't accommodate them. All right. Uh, We'll leave it there for today. Appreciate uh, you coming on to talk more about this. Sure. Thanks very much.